0: Well, good morning, you may have a seat when you find your way back after hanging out with everybody. Um, This morning, uh, we are like in week eight of the summer series, which usually means for us, that means like it's marking we're getting to the end of summer, which I know you're all really excited about. Everyone's really always excited about summer being over in Pennsylvania, but um, it is, I was just, I was just looking at my wife and I'm like, how are we like in August? Like how did that happen all of a sudden? But here we are. And uh, so we've been talking about the series called Revolve, revolving your life, living a life that's revolving around Christ, it's centered on Jesus. And this morning, um, we're turning our attention to Paul because the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Colossians, which is what we've been going through, turns his attention to what's that look like when you live it out? When you revolve your life around Jesus and then you live that out, what's that actually look like? So let me, let me ask you a question about like, whether this has ever happened to you. Maybe you'll identify with one of these situations. You get up in the morning, and you're coming to church. And uh, you might be excited about coming to church. You might be a little apprehensive about coming to church. But you're gathering your family to come to church and if you're, if you've got a family and you've got to get your kids here or you've got to get somebody else here and let's maybe someone's a little, they're the late person in the family. You know who you are. And you, cause the early person is elbowing you right now, telling you you're the late person in the family. Then you're trying to get them. And, and by late, I mean like you don't know there's any songs before the announcements at daybreak. That's what I mean. So like, so you're, you're on your way here and you, and you want it to be a really good day. But somehow, between the time you get up and the alarm goes off and the time you get here, you're mad at someone or you're freaking out on someone and it's just gone bad. And you're like, how did this happen? Why does this happen? Or how about this one? Like, You plan a day like to go out with your family or go out with someone. You're like, you make all these arrangements. And you're like, oh, we're going to go here and we're going to go do this. But then you get there and they don't appreciate it like you wanted them to or your kids start to melt down. And in that moment, you go from, like, best parent or best friend ever to, like, why are we here, like people don't even want to be around you, or you're just like totally uncomfortable, and you're going, how did this happen, or this one, my kids did this to me the other day, I was lecturing them, they're teenagers, and so every once in a while, they, they're always pushing the edge of respect, you know how that goes with teeny. like I, I remember, I did this too, it, so they're always riding that line of respect, and so I am lecturing them about they need to be respectful to their parents, and I'm just... I'm, I mean, they really pushed my butt, so I'm giving it to them about being respectful. And then one of them stops me, and they say, I get it, Dad, but here's the thing. You're not being very respectful with the way that you're telling us that we're being disrespectful, <laughs> which just made me calmer, of course. <laughs> so, so like, you identify with one of those situations, like you've had those moments, right, where you're like, you thought it was going to go well. You, you wanted to be this person of peace, or like this person that was a good friend, and It just didn't work out that way. And if you can relate to that, then you can relate to what this morning is. And I'm hoping that those disparities between the kind of person that you want to be and the kind of person that you actually live out and are bother you. Because when you say that you want to be one thing, you know, you talk about like, I want to do this, but then you don't do it. We have a name in our culture for that, don't we? And usually it hurts when you hear it, hypocrite, right? So saying that you want to revolve your life around Jesus, for example, but then not revealing Jesus in the relationships around you is a problem. And I hope that that bothers you like it bothers me when it happens to me. And I go, okay, those two things are so far apart right now. It makes me a hypocrite. I don't like to be a hypocrite. Nobody likes to be a hypocrite. And so this morning we're we're talking about, and what Paul is talking about is, how do we revolve our lives around Jesus? And however we're revolving our lives around Jesus ought to deeply affect how we reveal Jesus in the relationships that are around us. And how does that work it out? Well, it works its way out by loving people well, and it works it out by behaving in different ways. And I don't mean just working on the external behaviors. I mean working on the motivations behind the behaviors so that you're actually doing things that consistent. And I think there's this word that um, consistent is so important because I've counseled a lot of different people, and people come into my office as a pastor. Usually usually when they come, by the time they come into my office for a situation that they're in, it's usually not like, hey, things are going so well, I just want to tell you about them, right? They're usually the other side of that, like things aren't going well, and I need help, and I need real help right now. And when I... When we usually have these conversations, one of the things that becomes, has become apparent to me over years is that they're doing some good things sometimes, but it's not consistent. And I think when Paul wrote this letter, he had in mind us changing and transforming behaviors that would become consistent. And consistency is so important because it's just this little word, but Here's what I've discovered about it, is in every single relationship you have, if you fail to be consistently loving, something in that relationship will fail. And it happens all the time. I have seen relationships that like people, people do these really good things for each other but because they're not consistent. Something is failing in the relationship. And see, I think the way that this works is, as you begin to be transformed, the reason that consistently loving well is so important is because it builds a cushion of trust. It builds a foundation of trust. And you know that when you mess up, and you know that, like me, you mess up, that you need a cushion, right? I mean, if you take your bank account, for example, and you've got no cushion in your bank account, and all of a sudden you have an emergency, what happens? You're panicked. Right, things are falling apart because you got no cushion, and that's what loving consistently does. And the thing about it is, is that some of you, I know, sometimes you want to like put big deposits in, but big deposits don't count any more than consistency. In fact, consistency counts more in someone else's life when they're building tr- trust with you. Consistency counts more than big deposits, so you can't just do big things to make up for your failing. You got to do the little things consistently over time. And that's what Paul is talking about today. And so, if you're now if you're a follower of Jesus and you've made a commitment to follow Jesus, here's the thing. Here's what Jesus says about you as a follower of him is he says, "When people look at your life, they will know that you're my follower by what?" Anybody remember? By your love. By how well you love that's how they will know you. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not an optional thing today. When Paul talks about turning this corner, about revealing and loving well, this is not an optional thing. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And if you're here today and you haven't made that decision, that's okay, but I want you to know you can benefit greatly from what he's talking about today because these things, just in and of themselves, if you just did a few of these things in your relationships, it would remarkably improve your relationship. And I would argue probably that you will also find that you'll need Jesus to actually really do them well consistently, but you will improve your relationship just by doing these things. So let's get started today and talk a little bit about how does Jesus consistently reveal to me? How How do I reveal Jesus to others? Well, I reveal Jesus to others by consistently loving well at home. And so you can get out your outline and follow along today as we talk about being consistently loving well at home. This is the first place that Paul talks about. He's like, there's a place in your life that you're going to spend a lot of time, it's going to be at home. That's one of those places. And if you really want to love someone, then you've got to ask yourself, what kind of person am I at home? And if you really want to know, if, you, if you're in a family situation, and you really want to know what kind of person you are at home, ask your kids. or have some, Or worse, like, have someone else ask your kids. That makes you really nervous, right? Like, someone else is going to interview your kids about what kind of person you are at home. That... How many people are a little nervous about that? I would be, I am. Like, I'm like, oh no, what are Jacob and Caleb going to say about me? Oh my. So one of the things that Jacob and Caleb thinks, uh, they think it's cute. I, I, I don't know if they would say cute I think they think it's cute. I think it's just like pushing me and they like it and I'm just gonna respond with grace. And so one of the things they do is they have named these personas that they call when their dad has them. Okay. So when they when they push my buttons, they have a name for what they call Angry Sean, right? Like so and Angry Sean's they they say Angry Sean comes out after ten o'clock at night. Because I do, my, my patients, where when I get tired, like, I have very little emotional, like, I'm already, like, in my family, just natural to have a temper. And so, they, like, after 10 o'clock at night, man, they push my buttons, and they know they can just get me mad like that, right? The worst thing is they know I'll feel badly about getting that angry, and I'll probably apologize later, which is why I think they feel so free to do it. I guess I'm glad they feel loved and there's grace in their family, but I wish they would respect that a little bit more. But anyway, so they have this name for angry Sean, but then they also have the name for like fun Sean, right? And they're like, well, we'd like fun Sean to come back out. And they have a name for like all these different personas that they have for me. But the truth is, is that what that tells me is one, like they are watching. That's what it tells me. They are observing. And then my consistency matters. That's really what the underlying theme there is. My consistency matters to them. And it makes a difference over time. And I think if you interviewed them and they were honest, they would tell you, like, God has improved my consistency since they were younger and I've gotten better as I've taken steps closer to Jesus and Jesus has healed me more and more. That I'm not the same dad I was when they were younger as I am now. And I think they would tell you that I've, I've gotten better, they've improved me. Jacob and Caleb has improved my character through all of their own behavior. So this is what I'm telling you is that at home, you need to decide, like, what kind of person am I going to be? Am I going to be consistent? So this is what Paul turns his attention to. He says, you're going to revolve your life around Jesus, then it should look like this in your home. So Paul starts by in Colossians 3.18 by turning his attention to to family relationships. And he starts with wives, and he says this in Colossians 3.18, Wives... Submit to your husbands as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Now, before we start talking about this particular verse, let me set a context for this particular verse and this whole section, really. This whole section actually repeats itself in Ephesians. And so in Colossians, he writes a letter to the Colossian people and he says, Hey, this is how it should look like to follow Jesus in your family. And then it's so valuable that he writes it again to the Ephesians and he actually expounds on it when Paul writes the letter to the Ephesian church and says, I want to expound on this a little bit more. And in that section, he actually starts the whole section so there'll be no misunderstanding with this one verse that says, everyone submit to one another. Everyone submit. We're all to submit. If you're going to be in the family of God, you should submit to one another. So I set that context to let you know that the context here is mutual submission. And everything that you're going to read, all the advice that Paul gives you today is basically about if you're going to love well, loving well is following Jesus' example. And Jesus' example was to submit. He submitted to the Father to come to the cross. He submitted to the authorities that were on the earth in a way to love. And he submitted to, to us even, to serve us. He washed people's feet. Like, that's submission. And submission is not slavery, Submission is leveraging all of your power and all of your authority and all of your gifts to benefit someone else. That's what submission is. Okay, so today as we talk about husbands and wives and kids, like all of this is under the context of how do I submit? How does this person submit? How does that person submit? Because this is how we love well. And so Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands. He starts there. Now, as, as he taught this, He would assume this understanding, too, that in Roman culture, see, wives had no authority at all. They had no legal recourse. Children had no legal recourse. Only the men in Roman culture had legal recourse. So this was kind of shocking even that when he talked about mutual submission and when he would talk about co-heirs in Christ and that we're all equal in Christ, that was totally shocking to the Roman culture, to the people who lived in that culture. that'd be, You might be like, well, of course we're all co-heirs. And, well, of course we're all God made men and women equal. But that's not the way the Roman culture was. So when he was talking about this, this would have been an affront to that culture. Very shocking. And so then he says to women, listen, you know this, and now what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to say you, you are equals, you have power, and I want you to use that power and leverage it for the benefit of your husband." Now, I did say this, and I want you to hear this, ladies. You have power. Now, you may not think of yourself. I don't know if you think of yourself as power. I know there's all those, you know, women powerful messages out there, but I don't know how you think of yourself, but you have power. And you know you have power, right? And you know where your power lies in your beauty and in your intelligence and in your relational, in, your relational intelligence with each other, right, and with other people. Like, you pick up on things that most of us guys— totally miss right and in your attractiveness you have power you've probably used it since you were a teenager in dating guys didn't you you knew how to use your power and your attractiveness and what paul is saying is use that power but don't use it as power leverage it as submission leverage it in a way that says i want this to be for my long-term benefit of my husband we all have a choice to love well, and that's what Paul's really encouraging you as a, as a gal to say, listen, if you're going to be in a relationship, if you're going to be in a marriage, then leverage all the stuff that God's given you to benefit the person you love, the person that you're trying to love. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Now, submission is not about hierarchy and power. For instance, I am married to what I, th- what I believe to be one of the most beautiful, fantastic, kind, funny gals I've ever known. And I benefit greatly from her using those gifts. Now, here's what submission is not. Submission is not Susie saying yes to everything I say. It's not her agreeing or not disagreeing with anything I say. Because if she did that, I would lose. Do you know how much I have benefited from her speaking Jesus into my life? Teaching me to laugh at myself when I'm overreacting to something and she kind of mocks it a little bit, I've learned to laugh at myself. And she doesn't do that out of, like, look, I have power, look how bad you are. She does that out of love to point me towards Jesus. Do you know how much I've benefited from her encouraging me to take a risk? Or using, like, encouraging me in front of others and speaking, like, proudly in front of others. Like, do you know how much I've benefited from that? You know how much I benefited from her telling me slow down. Like you're about to do something that we're not, we haven't agreed on yet, and we're not ready for. Do you know how much times I have benefited from her say, t- telling me you are you're being a workaholic right now. You are working too hard. You are too focused on work. I need you need to be present with us. My family has benefited, and I have benefited. I am a better man because she has leveraged. All of her beauty and all of her relational intelligence and all of her kindness and all of her funny, she's leveraged it for my benefit. So this is what I believe Paul's asking us all to do, to leverage that. Ladies, are you leveraging that to benefit your husbands, to benefit those people in your life? Are you leveraging it by submitting? Because that's what Paul's talking about here. And I... And I have a special, I think, I think a good word of advice for those of you who are wives and also moms. Be careful. You notice what Paul says here. Like he doesn't say, he doesn't lead with wives submit to your children. Leverage all that for your children. He doesn't lead with that. So here's my caution, my word of advice. A lot from my own experience. Gals, I know you, if you're a mom, you love your kids. And you should. But make sure. That your husband and your kids both know that you're leveraging all of your power and authority first to help your husband follow Jesus. That he knows he's first. Because someday your kids are going to leave the house. Guess who you're going to be left with? Right? Leverage all of it for that. And by doing so, you will have a better marriage and a better family and your kids will benefit. And if you put your kids first, then your marriage will suffer, and they will suffer because your marriage suffers. So learn how to leverage all of it first for your husbands, okay? Learn how to put him before your children, and that's hard in our culture. I give that as kind of a hard word because in our culture, we worship our kids a little bit too much. We, I mean, we do everything for our children. We're afraid that if we don't have them in soccer by the age they're three, they'll never go to the Olympics, right? Well, oh man, they're never, like, their whole success is built on that, and That's not that's not true. So then Paul turns his attention towards us guys, okay? And he speaks into our role. Like, how do we submit? What's that look like for us? So here's what he says in Colossians 3:19. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Says on the children, if you're a child here today, he says, Listen, the way you submit is. Obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Obedience is your way of loving well at home. And they just again, back to fathers. Fathers, don't aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. Okay, so let's be honest here, guys. We do suffer a little bit from often, what have you done for me lately in relationships? We're awfully practical, naturally. Most of us are just pretty practical. Like, how is this going? How is this benefiting me What's working in this relationship? Like, Often we look at it that way. We, go, we get home from work, or you've done a hard day's work, or whatever, and you want everything lined up at home, and you come home, and it's chaos. Surprise, surprise. If you stayed any weekends with your kids, you're not surprised at all that it's chaos because you know what it's like to be around kids. That's, this is one of the gifts that they give to us when they're young, right? It's chaos. And so you, you get to understand and see that. But instead of you going, well, why didn't you do this, you say, how can I help? How can I help you? And you might be tempted to say, like, well, everyone else should be doing something for me. Like, I've worked hard today. You know what? But that's not what Paul's saying is, listen, don't do that. Treat your wife gently. In fact, I think what he's really getting at here is this. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to really take in this God thing, then what you should know is that every woman, especially your wife in your life, you should see them as a daughter of the king. And if she's a daughter of a king, it makes her a princess. And if she's a princess, you should treat her as a princess. You should treat her gently. Now, it is our nature. Most of us guys, we're pretty good at sarcasm, right? Like, we know how to dish it out to our kids. We know how to dish it out to our family. We do it with each other. We trash talk with each other a lot. We're pretty good at it. Don't do that with your wife. And don't do it in public. I have seen this happen over and over. And guys, I'm going to give it to you right now. Never, ever insult, even in a joke, your wife in front of others. It's not cool. It's not good. She doesn't like it because she's not a guy. So she doesn't think that's good. She doesn't take it like a guy takes it. She's a lady. Treat her gently. Never speak harshly to her. And this is what Paul says, this is your way of submitting. Sarcasm is not your friend here. Make your priority to love your wife, guys. Make it your priority to treat her with love. And Jesus taught us as guys, looking to Jesus, this is the way Jesus taught us. He said, "You want to learn. you want to know what loving well looks like? Then lay down your life. Because that's what it looked like for Jesus, didn't it? I mean, when when sin was a problem, when people were separated from God, and this was a problem, and Jesus and the Father were having this conversation, like, what are we going to do about it? What did Jesus say? I'll do it. I'll go. I'll go to the cross. I'll make a way for people to come back and be in relationship with us. When Jesus was on the planet and feet needed washed in a room, do you know what Jesus said? I'll I'll do it. I'll serve you. I'll make sure that's all possible. Over and over and over again. So, guys, here's my word of advice you. want to love Gently, you want to treat your wife like a princess, you want to act like Jesus, you want to reveal God, you want to have a great marriage, then outserve her in every way. Outserve her in every way and do it with enthusiasm. Do you know the difference between serving and serving with enthusiasm? Attitude. Like you're not expecting anything in return. And I know for me, when I do something, there's a big temptation, you know, whether it's washing the dishes or doing something else to help my wife, cleaning up a room, like, staying, sticking, like, I hate to clean, like, I just really do, and so when my wife starts to clean, like, I know it's never, like, a 15-minute clean job, like, she is, like, thorough, right, so, like, everything will be cleaned and like, she gets started, and I'm like, oh, man, this is gonna be, like, an eight-hour day, oh, right, and I remember when I was younger, I would do that, and I would help But I expected something in return, and I resented when I didn't get it. That's not love. It's not love. When you expect something in return, that's not love. That's a trade-off. If you want to love, then you do it with enthusiasm, expecting nothing in return. And that's the test for you, guys. That's the test. Like You know you've done it and you've loved well when you expect nothing in return. You're like, that was just good to do it. It was just good to serve. So let me talk one more thing then about when it lo- loving well, what's it look like? Guys, here's what it looks like. It, lo- it looks like treating your wife well. It means listening to her. When a TV's on, you turn the TV off when she needs to talk to you. okay? You listen to her. You affirm her. You sacrifice for her. And you do that consistently. You don't do it just once a week. You don't just pick one time to do it. You do it consistently, and over time, it will be to build a cushion and a foundation of trust that changes your marriage. And then you've got Paul says, "And guys, by the way, don't aggravate your children." Now, before I go into this one, let me say this about probably a little bit both of things. Paul was talking to a society that was not egalitarian. Okay, it was hierarchical, and so as he's talking about this, he's phrasing it in this way. But we live in a little bit more egalitarian society where we see each other as equals and more partners in marriage. And so in that, I think what happens is often there are also in those relationships, the husband might be more like the laid back one and you as the wife might be more the go getter, the beaver, the lion, the you know, the I'm I'm going to kind of give it to the kids and that kind of stuff. So as I speak to this about husbands, I'm really talking to you guys as parents because in our culture this could go either way, okay? It says, don't aggravate your children. So when your kids do something that is aggravating to you, it is not your job to aggravate them. It is your job to teach them and to discipline them. So when your, your kids need, every once in a while, if you're the sheriff in the family, right, your kids need the sheriff is back in town speech. I get that. Like, they every once in a while, your kids need that. Like, sheriff is back in town, you know, you crossed all the boundaries. I'm here to make peace, okay? And, and don't bring your knife to the gunfight because you will lose. I have, all the gu- I have all the bullets right now. You don't have any. Let's be clear about who the parent is, okay? You're not rolling the roost. I am. That's, that's okay that they need that once in a while. But two weeks after you've disciplined them, they should not wonder if you love them. You understand? And when you go overboard, you should apologize. Your kids should know that you're not perfect, one of the best gifts you give them is you will overreact. If you're, this, if you're in this personality type, you're going to overreact to your kids. Apologize to them. Let them know, like, that was, that was too much. And do you know why you should do this? Because according to a study in 2000 by the Committee of Integrating Science and in Early Childhood Development, the most important and main factor in your kids' success in life, do you know what it is? It's not how many sports they play in. It's not how many trophies they win. It's not how nice you are, how good of friends you are to them. It's the bond that you make with them as a parent. That's what determines the difference for them. And don't ruin that bond by aggravating them and discouraging them. That's not revealing Jesus. That's that's revealing you. And I know you'll, you'll need help with all of this. So, I want, you, I want you to tune in for a second because we want, we want to be a church that actually helps you figure these out. And these behaviors are not easy to put in place, and you will need help. You will have to lean into Jesus if you want to do this consistently, and you'll probably have to lean into some others. And so I want you to watch a video of something. Right now you might be like, hey, everything's good. Come this fall, you might be like, I need some help. I want my marriage to be a little bit better. I want to take a next step. And so there's a, there's a group that we run that helps you do that, and it's called Reengage. And I want you to hear some of their stories and how... Having these behaviors on a regular basis has helped them, and you might decide, I could use that help, too. I could grow in that way, too. Let's take a look.
1: We first came to the reengage class because we had a family crisis, and I felt our marriage had suffered emotionally
2: and financially.
1: I thought it was important to be proactive and invest in
2: our marriage. We knew we needed something to help us reconnect again after 13 years of marriage. Even though we were newly married, um, we had been together for a very long time, and we knew that we needed a lot of help with our relationship.
1: We realized that our marriage should be a priority, and we wanted to have some tools to communicate better and to just work on our marriage.
2: I learned at Reengage that no marriage is perfect, yet we can actually help make it perfect in our eyes and God's eyes by following scripture. We also learned that we didn't have it figured out, and we were lacking in the communication department big time.
1: It also reminded me that uh, my relationship with Christ has to be first, and then our relationship will be able to grow. We learned a lot about just the way that God loves us and his plan for us. And how we can put that into our marriage. You know, that that was a, a piece of the puzzle that, that was really missing. I'm so happy we came.
2: We like reengage because it showed us that we weren't the only ones facing certain challenges. It also created somewhat of a support group for one another moving forward. It gives us time outside of Um, our everyday hectic life to get together and to learn more about each other. And it's
1: informal and it was kind of almost a fellowship time. And then we broke into smaller groups where it was a little easier to share some things that are maybe a little more intimate and a little more personal. We just felt like you know that we were the only ones that had the issues that we were having and it turns out we weren't alone. Our marriage has changed through re engage, I've learned to appreciate Dee more and realize that she is one of God's daughters and I should care for her that way. I recognize that my marriage relationship is supposed to only be second to my relationship with God. And I've had a tendency of making my relationship with my kids more important than my relationship with my husband. You know, before re engage, you know, it wasn't like we weren't in love, but we just had a hard time. Uh, even being on the same planet, if it felt like at times. You know, learning God's plan on how He just kind of planned everything out, and if we just believe in each other as we believe in God and, and His love for us, and even try to try to love each other in the way He loves us, I mean, that's a step in the right direction. I'm able to work harder on my anger and my own weaknesses.
2: You know, we're still learning um, to implement better communication, things like selfless giving, Godly love, patience, patience, <laughs> and more patience. Um, but these are things that we have learned at Re-Engage, and I'm finding that it's actually really working. So, yeah, it's just patience. <laughs> if you're considering coming to Reengage, I'd say... It's a good place to make new friends and have support. You definitely say, do, do
1: it. it. Do it. Definitely do it. It's well worth your time. Just do it. It's worth your time. It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth your marriage to do it.
2: If you really want to come to something that's going to take divorce off the table, then definitely do it.
0: Listen, we believe that here at Daybreak, that God wants to really a life-changing story in your life. So I want to encourage you, like, if you've been in that place where you're like, man, I would like to go a little farther. I'd like to have a little bit more change in my marriage, and it's, hard, it's been hard to do this consistently, that is a great place to do it. And you can just write on your response card today, re-engage, and somebody will follow up with you and give you a little bit more information about that. I encourage you. And I love what, I love what uh, they said in there about, like, listen, the principles actually work. If you learn how to do them consistently, they will work. They will help you to love and show love well consistently. Okay. So Paul talks about this at home, and then we're going to turn our attention, he turns his corner and he says, now I want to talk to you about another place that you spend on a whole lot of time, probably half of your life here, and that's at work. And how do, how do you reveal Jesus consistently by loving well, consistently loving well at work? Now this question for some of you might even be harder than the first question. Like if I was to ask your coworkers what kind of person do they experience at work, how many of you would be a little nervous about that one? Like, ooh, man, I, I don't know what they would say about me or how I interact with them. Like, what is that like? And Paul is turning his attention to the Roman workforce. Now, as he goes into this, these verses about the Roman workforce, what you have to understand is in Roman culture, the Roman workforce, 50% of the Roman workforce were either slaves or had been slaves at one time. And so as he addresses slavery, he's not, really, he's not condoning it. He's addressing a realistic situation and saying, this is how you bring dignity to that situation. And based on statistics of the fact that, last time I read the statistics on this, 80% of people don't like their job. They would rather not work where they work. They don't enjoy it at all. Like 80% of people that do that, My guess is most people go feeling a little bit like a slave, like they have to show up. They don't really want to show up. And so this probably addresses us in that way just as well. And so Paul says, listen, I want you to be able to learn how to put Jesus on display. And so he addresses the Roman workforce of slaves, and he says this to them. To slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them at all times, not just when they're watching you. I love the way Paul talks about this. He says, listen, I want you to address this. I want you to be a person who is is of the best character possible, who says, listen, I want to do the best job I can. And even when the boss is away, even when the boss isn't looking, still do your best. Wow, how many people, when their boss goes away, kind of take it down a notch, like, Turn the dial back, bosses away, a that people will play, right? Like, I, I know, I, I've been there, I've lived that. Like, hey, I don't have to work. Like, the boss isn't looking over my shoulder right now. I'm just going to turn it down a few notches. And what Paul says is, like, listen, don't do that, especially when they're not watching. The way you put Jesus and reveal him and reveal Jesus' love, the way you love well at work is by put Jesus on display by doing your best, always. Then he goes on to say in verse 23, work willingly at whatever you do. Don't resist it. Don't, don't be, give people a hard time about giving you assignment. Work willingly at whatever you do as though working for the Lord rather than people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the, and that the master you are serving is Christ. And if you do what is wrong, you'll be paid back for the wrong you've done for God has no favors. So he says, listen, when you go to work, If I asked you, why do you go to work? Why do you show up at work? My guess is that most of you would say, because they pay me, right? If they stop paying you, how many of you would go back to work? I'm just just wondering, like anybody going back to work if they stop paying you? Okay, that's what I thought. And so what Paul says, and this this should kind of set you back a little bit, is he's saying, stop working for your paycheck. Stop it. Don't work because they pay you. Work because you're working for Jesus. Work as though you are working for God, that he is your master. Because your reward is not a paycheck. Your reward is an inheritance that comes from God. Your reward is when you work hard and you reveal Jesus, you you experience forgiveness and grace. You experience the kind of life you've always wanted. You experience freedom and security. You go with confidence, and you don't, you don't resent your work when you're going because you're working for God, because he is your master. It changes everything. Now, I know some of you might say, yeah, but you don't know my boss. Chun, you don't know my boss. Like, you don't know what my boss is like. You don't know the kind of person he is. He is a real jerk. He makes no good decisions. Like every like, He is like the pointy-haired boss on Dilbert. Like You just... You can't even imagine the kind of guy that I work for. And see, here's the thing. Paul isn't saying, do really good work for your boss, who's a jerk. He's saying, do really good work for your boss, who is Jesus. And by doing that, you will reveal Jesus to your boss, who's a jerk. That's what he's saying. So do the work, not for him, for you. And and chances are, and I, I would encourage you to do this, because this has always been, this has been a mantra of mine, when... When you're having a lot of problems with your boss, he's probably got some problems, but you probably have some problems. So just make sure you look in the mirror. Chances are that there's maybe some things that you could learn from God about how you're doing your job that could make things go a little bit better. Some of you might also say, my work is really demanding. Like you don't know what they require of me. You don't know. Like they probably, they probably ask you to work more hours than you want. They probably lay people off and then give you their jobs too and say, be just as productive with it. They probably do. I mean, I I worked for 15 years in the marketplace. That's what they asked me to do all the time. And here's the thing about working for Jesus. Here's what I would say to you. Work because your inheritance is from God. Work as though you're working for Jesus and not for that corporation. And this is this has all kinds of implications. It has implications about how hard you work. It has implications about your boundaries because Jesus wants you to have a good family too. It has implications about how you treat other people at work. It has implications about your integrity, right? What kind of things you're willing to do and what kind of things you're not willing to do. It has implications about your willingness to go further and do a little bit better of a job than someone else might do just to do the assignment and be done. Like, this has a lot of implications. And I would encourage you to work as though you're working for God and not just for your company. What would happen if your coworkers discovered that kind of person among them? A person who cared for them as much as they cared for themselves. Like, they really loved them. And in case you're a boss or a supervisor or a manager and you thought, boy, I'm glad I kind of got by on that one, you didn't, and so Paul addresses you too, and he says this, he says, masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Now, Jesus tells a few stories about bosses, okay? And you probably don't want to hear all of them. Trust me, if you're a boss or a supervisor, when you read those stories... It doesn't always end well for the boss or the supervisor. Like it's, he expects something, kind of like raises the bar. If you're going to lead and take care of people, God says, I appointed you to that position and you better care about people the way I care about people. If you're going to be a caretaker of people, then you better take care of your people. And so he says, listen, watch how Jesus led and lead the same way. Love well, be fair and just. Watch out for the people that you're leading. Be be a protector of them and a shepherd of them. Watch out for what's going on in them. And why should you do that? Because your master in heaven is watching. In other words, if if you've been promoted to that level of supervision, God says, I am promoting you with that, and I'm holding you to a higher level of accountability in that because you're now caretaking for people. And so I don't know if you've ever seen your job that way, but that's how God sees your job. And encourage you to do the same. Now, I know that that's not easy. Um, I know that when I was, uh, when I was in, the place, in the marketplace, um, growing with God was hard, you know, going to work, and people don't always, they don't respect what, you, they don't value what you value, right? They don't respect the things that you respect. And, and when I became a leader, that became even more challenging because people wanted things done a certain way, and you had to interact with other leaders who didn't want to do it the way that you wanted to do it, and I remember this one guy that I worked with, and he and I, like, I, sw- I, I, I honestly, I think God just put him there to develop me. In some days I was like, oh, man, like, I, he would just push my buttons. We were like polar opposites in our belief and, like, leadership strategy. And so I was working really hard on my team to take care of my people. To make sure that they felt cared for, to make sure they were in the right positions, doing the right things, and so I worked really hard to serve them well. And he just had a different philosophy. He didn't—he didn't have any reason to—to to like, he didn't have like a real belief in God and any reason to do that. And he was a guy who wanted to be promoted, and so he worked really hard to look good. And so he treated people the same way, like it was about—it was about getting things done. And it was about making himself look good. And I remember one day he treated one of my people really bad. And uh, I, I don't think I felt that kind of rage and offense for a long time. I was probably the most offended, and, like, I just had this sense of, like, you just stepped on the, like, that was the last, that was the last straw kind of thing. And uh, he, was, he was probably one of the only guys I've ever worked with that made me want to cuss. In fact, he made me cuss sometimes. And so I confess that to you that, man, I just... Because I wanted to lead well. I wanted to create kingdom space. And he was just working against it all the time. It just felt like that. And I remember how I sitting down and having a conversation with him, praying about it a lot, and having a conversation with him and just saying, listen, I know we have different philosophies. Here's the thing. If you keep offending the way I do things, I'm not going to be as helpful to you. And you really want to like do well and look good, then we need each other. And it's good for the company if we do. So why don't you... Just let me do things the way I do them. And I will guarantee that I will deliver what you need. And just watch and see how it works. Why don't you just let me test drive this? Stop like interfering with it. And it was such a good conversation for us to have. And God, I, I just felt so blessed in that the kingdom principles of loving well work. People loved being on that team. They worked hard at it. And we cared for each other because of it. And we produced really good products in it. I guess what I'm saying is, if you're a manager or supervisor, you have an opportunity to create kingdom space where you work. Use it. Bless others in it. Love well and do it consistently. Stand up for it when you need to stand up for it. It won't be easy. But people will be greatly blessed to live in a space where the kingdom principles and God's there, and you're loving well. So the question that I leave you with today is, how's this all working out for you in your home? How's this working out for you at work? When you think about revealing Jesus and loving well, how well are you doing it? Because it doesn't, it's not attending church that reveals Jesus. Though I would argue that attending church can help a lot. When you're around other believers, when you're learning from each other, it can help a lot. But that's not really the measure of it, is it? Like how much you go to church doesn't really measure how well you're revealing Jesus. And, and how, how moved you are in a worship service doesn't really measure how well you're loving Jesus. What really measures how well you're loving Jesus? How do other people know that you're loving Jesus? How well are you loving them? This is the measure, this is the ultimate measure of your spirituality and your journey with God, is how well do you love others? And I'm going to tell you right now that probably most of you are going to discover that trying to do that without Jesus is really, really difficult. And revolving yourself around Jesus, which is why Paul spent the first three chapters talking about that, will change everything about it. But being consistent in loving others well, it's kind of a symbiotic relationship with loving Jesus well because you'll have to, as you lean in and really try to love others well and you fail, you'll lean back into Jesus and go, why isn't this working? I need you to help me make this work. And the more you do that the more consistently you do it, guess what happens? You know the very, do you know what the ultimate goal of Christianity is? Anybody know what the ultimate goal of Christianity is? The ultimate goal is that you will be transformed to the image of Jesus, that you will look and see and walk like Jesus does. That's the ultimate goal of Christianity. Everything else in Christianity is pointing towards that goal. And guess what happens when you consistently love people well? It starts to become your nature. You start to do it regularly. You test drive what Jesus is, and you lean into Jesus, and people know you by your love. So I challenge you to begin to think about, what are the relationships around you? How are you loving well in those relationships? What would they say about the kind of person that they experience? I'm going to take a moment to pray for you, and then the worship team's going to bring some music. And I want you to sit, and as you worship in that music, as you listen to it, I want you to contemplate, like, who's experiencing love well in my life? And who needs to experience a little bit more of it? Let's pray together. Lord God, I know that you love us. I know that you love us because, Jesus, you came and you proved your love for us. And I know that you have the power to change us because I've experienced it and I've watched other people experience it to transform us, to love others well, to give us the power to love others well. God, there's these two environments at our home and at our work, and they're tough places to pull it off. But we know that others will know you, that you will be revealed when we love well. So God, we confess to you that we don't always do that, right? That there's some people that have suffered from us not doing it well. We confess to you that we don't have the power to do that well. And we ask, will you give us the power to love others well? Will you indwell us in a new way? If we surrender to you, will you help us submit and sacrifice and surrender for the sake of others? And I pray this in Jesus' name.